Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. The big show. The icy show. The cold show. The diamonds in the tree show. We are driving down the road, and we're driving past gravel roads that are just literally, absolutely, I could skate on them. Ice skates <coughs> would be better than feet or cars on right. those roads. Literally. You, know, you ever watch that, that show on TV, which I don't think we've ever watched because we don't actually have a TV to watch. But if we did, you know, I know there's a show called Ice Road Truckers. Um, and uh, that anybody driving a, a truck down one of these gravel roads in North Missouri this week would be an Ice Road <laughs> Trucker. But we're not here to talk about icy roads, even though, frankly, we'll be glad to talk about icy roads. At some point in time, it's just not the subject of today. Today. Excuse me. Um, today, my goodness, look at that thing. <laughs> we got a nice storm a day or two ago, and the oh, trees are just beautiful, coated with a layer of ice with the sun shining behind them. But the roads are not as pretty, <laughs> shining with a smooth sheet of ice. Uh, the local school district has missed more school this year than they've missed in the last 40 years. And Probably includes, in the last 10 combined. <laughs> that includes the, the, the late 70s, which, you know, the, back at the time they could ride up, they could run the school buses on the hard roads. Now they just can't. I mean, the hard roads aren't even clear. Well, the, the main highways are clear, but that's about it. But, uh, I mean, it's crazy. I'm going to take a brief detour here. Just a very brief detour here. Okay, I just paused the recording so we could stop by one of these roads and take a picture of it. So I'm going to put this, I'm going to post this picture with the podcast. So if you look at the, this will be the the podcast picture. I mean, it is just absolutely glare ice. I've never seen roads like this before in all the years that I have lived in North Missouri. It's I, just I have, but you were uh, in Missouri at any rate, but it's been a long time. Anyway, long story short, that's not what this is about. We're not here to talk about icy roads. What are we here to talk about? It's a, it's a blind mystery episode. I call it a mystery episode is one where one of us knows the subject and the other one just has to pipe up and pretend. <laughs> <laughs> A blind mystery episode is where the person who's declaring it a mystery episode doesn't know the subject. Me, I don't know the subject of this podcast. She does. Do, 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 Gosh, do. I wonder what we're talking about. We're talking about whatever it is article you were writing this morning. Because I didn't, I, you, you said you were writing an article, but you never actually mentioned at any time that I was listening to you, of course. Yes, I only <laughs> well, mentioned it three or four times. So at none any time of those I was times listening he to was you. listening to me. <laughs> I'm not hurting your ego, am I? No, I'm well over that. <laughs> it's not about me. <laughs> yeah, it's not about me. I don't have the problem, she says. <laughs> so, so it's about what's been going on with the vaccinations. And the measles outbreak. Because we've had both. We've had yep. vaccinations and we have measles outbreaks. Yeah. Now, and the setup here. Should we do a caveat? Sure. We're not physicians. 
Okay, we're not physicians. We don't know anything. But we do know, at least one of us knows, how to read medical research that is done in peer-reviewed medical journals. And know which ones are quality and which ones are pay-per-view. <laughs> okay. The reason I bring that up is because there is a lot of garbage floating around on in the vaccine area. There's a lot of absolute completely fabricated stuff out there. Actually, there's not much research that's fabricated. There's just the one paper, and it's been pulled. Uh, <laughs> but still. Uh, but yeah. so much is still based off of that one thing that yeah, there's just a lot isn't of true. It was stuff completely made up. That's not even where I went with this post, no, though. No, I just wanted to Because people know about, yes. know, know about that. So. This is about, on one hand, it's hard to argue that Vaccinations for or necessary vaccinations for diseases that are dangerous and high risk have saved a whole lot of lives in the past, oh, 60, 70 years. That's well, it's anybody who wants to argue that is arguing that the world is flat. Yeah. And that, you know, we're, we're getting to the point in you're trying, the world is flat, the Detroit uh, tight, or try to get the Detroit Lions have won 17 Super Bowls. I mean, things that are obviously. Now you're getting just silly. Yeah, now I'm just getting really silly. <laughs> sorry. Uh, but anyway. I'm sorry, sorry for the Detroit fan Two out words there. that don't go together, Detroit <laughs> Lions and Super Bowl, don't fit in the same conversation. Go right ahead. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, but the place the question comes in as what vaccination should be considered necessary. And although I do have real and informed opinions on the subject, that's not what I'm here to talk about particularly. Instead, I'm talking about decision choices. What factors do you look at to decide whether or not to get a particular vaccination at a particular time? And the reason I was motivated to write this article is I was reading about what's been going on up in Washington. And as we speak, they're having a measles outbreak in Washington. That's almost epidemic size at this point. Washington State? Washington State. Okay. The Pacific Northwest in general. It's it's spreading. Started in Washington State. It's spreading around up there. It's spreading other places, too. We actually have had cases in Missouri and Illinois in the past week pop up because people move. And we have a we have a caveat. We have to answer in our part of the country. We have a very, very, very large percentage of our population compared to everywhere else of Amish. And Mennonite. And Mennonites. Now, some Mennonites vaccinate, some don't, but the Amish do not. And they are well known in epidemiological literature as uh, test areas to look at disease transmission in unvaccinated populations. Yeah, because they're they just don't do they're it. helpful and they'll you know answer nice, questions and things like that. They but don't vaccinate. They have problems with disease transmission because they don't vaccinate. But at the start of this outbreak. This is one of the, it started in a community where there is a strong anti-vaxxer sentiment. And the state allows parents to opt out for, oh, basically any reason. They have to fill out a form to say why they're not getting their kid vaccinated against measles. And but that's the only thing you're going to hear no about real the test. state in this entire thing, because we don't talk about politics here. No, I, 
don't care about the politics, not interested in the politics. That's just how it is. And in this particular community, you know how things are. You talk to your friends. You talk to the people around you to make your decisions. In this particular community, the percentage of children vaccinated against measles was particularly low, like lower than anywhere in Europe by a good long stretch. It was down to 75% vaccination. You mean Europe where there isn't any measles outbreaks? That place? No, I mean the Europe that's starting to get measles outbreaks because they're starting to have an anti-vax movement. Oh, okay. <laughs> that one. You're talking about the Europe of five years ago. I see. They've been infected, so to speak. <laughs> but anyway, 75% vaccination in the community. So they got a measles outbreak. And out of that measles outbreak, they say that, what was it, if I recall the numbers correctly, 43 of the 50 confirmed cases were unvaccinated people, uh, almost all of them, 42 of them, children. They had six people whose vaccination status was unknown, and one person who had gotten the first of the two-shot series, which normally provides about 93% protection from measles. I guess this person was one of the 7%. Hadn't gotten the booster yet and got it. And zero cases among the vaccinated population. Uh, at any rate, 75% vaccination rate. 50 cases of measles pop up. In one month, the request for vaccinations jumps by over 500% in that county. So from went from hundreds to thousands of requests for vaccinations in a month. Which... Because now they actually saw the need if you think about it, is kind of an issue. Much of, of the reasoning behind people who do not vaccinate is they are depending on what's called herd immunity. And I see lots of herds as we drive here through northeast Missouri. Uh, if, the, if you got a herd of 100 cattle and 99 of them are vaccinated against a disease, then the 100th ca- uh, beef is almost not, certain to not get the disease. Where would it get it from? As because there's nobody to pass it. Right. Yeah. As, yeah. Long, as long as it's not something, the only thing you're in danger of is, is if having it come in from an outside source. Like if it's uh, something that hits from, you know, like a, a, a parasite or something. That's the only, because they're not getting it from one of their, their herd Yeah. Members. Most transmission is from the beings you deal with day to day. Right. So when unvaccinated children were a very small subset of the population, they didn't get sick either because nobody was transmitting the disease around. But 75% is below the threshold for effective herd immunity in measles. In measles, I believe it's 85% of the population has to be vaccinated to get a good herd immunity going. And then the other 15% kind of ride their coattails. But 75% isn't high enough. So the disease started spreading like crazy through this community, and they popped up with 50 confirmed cases in a big fat hurry. And they started having breakout outbreaks in other areas, like Missouri and Illinois, because uh, people would pick it up in the outbreak area, and then they'd travel somewhere else. So I got to thinking about the strategy of waiting until it is evident that a particular vaccination is necessary before taking the particular vaccination. What determines when you should take early and when it's a more reasonable choice to wait and maybe not take a vaccination until you see a real threat for it? 
because I don't take every available vaccination because I judge my risk for some of these diseases is low enough that it's not worth taking them. I'm, I'm not saying right. everybody now, should I'm be taking every vaccination. I'm vaccinated, uh, certainly for the lifetime vaccinations, and a lot of these are lifetime vaccinations. Not all of them, but a lot of them are. I'm vaccinated for so much more than you are. It's not even funny. Oh, yeah. Stuff that's not endemic in the U.S. I lived in Southeast Asia in the 60s, and you got vaccinated for every doggone thing. Now, one of the, the worst things about being a kid and having to travel overseas were the shots. Every Thursday, I'd get four shots. And this went on for months. Every Thursday, four shots. The thing is, now if you get a vaccination, you know, a lot of times that they're a combination vaccination. They, they put all these stuff in there, so you're getting them all at once. They didn't do that that way. And today's vaccinations are much more sophisticated. They're buffered. They don't hurt as much. <laughs> hmm? They don't hurt, generally. They don't hurt. Yeah, they don't, other than the little pinprick, that's about the, the size of it. Back then, they used, um, you know, needles the size of, of a space rocket. And they the amount that they had to use to, was so much more. I mean, literally, it would take 30 seconds to inject because they had to use this huge, because they didn't have the technology of the vaccine was not, I mean, it was just, yeah, it wasn't an engineered vaccine. And some of them were actually live active vaccines, too, which they don't say really don't have any other choice now. Um, so anyway, but I got all these vaccinations when I was a kid. You don't need to confuse live and active, however. Those are actually two different things. Okay, well, whatever. Uh, it, was, it was quite a traumatic experience. But, you know, I lived, and we didn't get... I mean, we went to some pretty yellow fever third and world hellhole. I don't know what all. I remember you talking about yellow fever, and certainly oh, that was yellow a high fever, risk scarlet, scarlet fever, scarlet fever, uh, rheumatic fever, uh, uh, the a bunch of rheumatic really Southeast staff, Asia yeah. specific yeah. stuff: uh, typhoid, typhus, uh, cholera. Uh, you, of course, obviously polio. Uh, I almost said Polaroid. I'm yeah. <laughs> obviously polio. I got polio. Um, you got polio? Sure. Yeah. Everybody They were still getting polio, polio yeah. Everybody in the U.S. Everybody got polio. Um, but, I mean, I, I don't even remember what a lot of these were. Uh, but a lot of them you would, I mean, basically, if, if you got it, if you went to the U.S. military for Southeast Asia and you got that vaccination package, that's what I got. Plus all the childhood stuff on top of it. So... I am vaxxed. So it's about which ones do you take and which ones do you hold off until the need looks evident. And what really surprised me about this news story about the measles outbreak is that they actually had enough vaccine and they weren't running out. But measles is a very common vaccine and it stores very well. So they had big stores on hand and they could get it in quickly because it's not a nationwide outbreak. It's a very localized outbreak at this point not a nationwide epidemic, it's a localized outbreak. So they can draw from large pools of supplies that were going to go other places. Nobody goes very short. They up the production just a little bit, and you're covered. Because in one county, an extra 1,500 doses is a ton. In the U.S., it's nothing. So contrast that now. And you may do this in the story. I don't want to bust your name. But contrast that to something like, say, a flu virus, where the flu strain that is breaking out is one that's actually covered by the flu shot. Yeah, well covered. You would just not be able to. nasty flus. And then there's that that other stuff, that uh, the stuff, the 
that they give you to reduce once you have the flu to reduce it? Tamiflu. That stuff. Is Try and get some one? of that if there's a bad flu outbreak. Yeah, that's tough to get a hold of, too. But that's only, that's a fairly minor thing, too. It's not that great a help. Doesn't work yeah, as well still, as Yeah, but still, you can't get it. Yeah. It's an example of yeah, we what tried, happens. Yeah, we tried one year. We're, there was a big flu outbreak, and we were going on vacation, and I, I asked my provider to give me some Tamiflu just in case we got hit on vacation. And she's like, yeah, that's a reasonable request given the situation, but no, can't do it because we're out. And that's what happened in 2004. There was a very nasty strain of flu. The vaccination was protecting pretty well, but it was a really unpleasant variety, and it was killing a lot of people who are otherwise susceptible to flu. It was a high fatality rate flu for generic seasonal flu. And I happened to be on chemotherapy that year, which was not a great year to be on chemotherapy as far as disease transmission goes because it really lowers your immunity. So I often take the flu vaccine so I don't become a node and pass it around. But that year, it was actually important to my well-being and potentially my life that I get the flu vaccine. And when I first read the news, I started calling around to our health department. Don't have any. My normal provider. Don't have any. The other normal providers in town. Don't have any. We live in such a small town that I only see my oncologist every two or three weeks. So a week later or so, he asked me if I've gotten the vaccine, and I'm like, I haven't been able to find any. He says, fix your right up. <laughs> Give you one on your way out. <laughs> yeah, when the flu vaccine the is in short supply. People, yeah, They can get it because they're on the higher level. Yeah, everybody was trying to order flu vaccine for their practices, and most of them, they're going, well, you know, supplies are limited. And he calls up, well, supplies are limited. I'm an oncologist. How much do you want? <laughs> <laughs> Because, yeah, his population could easily, very easily die without the vaccine. Would you like a super super roll? Of course, but do not stop. We're moving right on. Okay. We're not going to stop and buy me a giant cinnamon roll. We're driving right now. We're, we're driving in North Missouri. We're heading east. We're leaving the state, actually, at the moment. And I'm going to tell you, this is your, here's your tip. If you want the best, and I mean the best, giant Cinnamon Rolls, Stanley's Highway 6 Diner in Lewistown. Yep. They're not we, o- we just, super the sweet. They're not oily. Stop. They're not ridiculously drenched in oh, icing, although they have some. They're, they're very huge. cinnamony. Nice light. Oh, oh, anyway. Very, they're, they're very light. They're, they're very fluffy. They're the kind you just pull apart and they just kind of... Ah, da, da, da. I enjoy them a lot, but you they're, you they're bad for me. I'm not eating one today. Off we go. Drive on. There's two reasons to stop in in Lewistown. One is to stop at the C store if you gotta, you know, do C store stuff. And the other one is these rolls. Yeah. I'm sure there's other things in Lewistown. I don't know, but we're we're driving, driving through. on through. We're actually, we're going over to take eagle pictures. We're going over to the river. So that's what we're doing. And the only way to get over to the river is to drive over to the river. And here's my aside. Are you ready for my aside? <laughs> <laughs> the cinnamon rolls were not the aside. <laughs> no, the cinnamon rolls were were opportunity. Eagle pictures. If you're going to take pictures or you want to watch eagles, you go, you pick a town along the Mississippi River that has a lock and dam, and you just go south of the lock and dam where the water is turbulent, and there will be eagles. Canton has a lot of eagles. Keokuk has a lot of eagles, but not so many because it's really built up on both sides of the river. 
uh, Quincy has a lot of eagles. Uh, Clarksville has a lot of eagles. Hannibal. Hannibal has. Hannibal has a lot of eagles. You know, basically, you go every 21 river miles, there's a lock and dam on the north part of the Mississippi. So that's where you're going to go to get your eagles. And when we say a lot of eagles, we're talking there's often two to 300 eagles for like Fishing at a time. It's, it's a buffet. You have to literally watch out not that they don't drop fish heads on you as you walk under the trees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to, back to vaccine. So uh, that's one consideration is will the vaccine actually be available when you need it? And if it's a dangerous disease and it's a big outbreak and it's especially not one for which people are regularly, you know, vaccinated in large quantity, it's going to be hard to get the vaccine. So keep that part in mind. Another part is there's a lag time between when you get a vaccination, unless it's, you know, there are two kinds of vaccinations, the active kind coaxes your immune system to set up an attack against whatever germ you're talking about. Sometimes it's alive, and sometimes it's killed or a genetically engineered piece of it, but it's always about your immune system figuring uh, out and cloning the right cells to defend against it. And there are the best vaccines for long-term because, well, they do last long-term. Once you build the cells, you keep a bunch of them around for many years and maybe the rest of your life. So that's the usual kind of vaccination. The other kind is passive, where they just give you antibodies, which are proteins that something else has built to fight this particular disease. And they work right away, but they only last a month or three. So you normally get the active kind. And the active kind does not work right away because it's got to find the few of your cells that can attack that disease and coax them into cloning and making lots, lots more just like them. How long it takes to work differs for different vaccines. Now, the measles isn't bad. If you get a measles vaccination today, you can expect to have some protection from it in 72 hours. That's a pretty good turnaround. There are others that take longer because the details of how the immune system does its thing and the details of the uh, vaccines differ. So lag times? No, there's going to be one between when you actually get the vaccine and when you're going to be protected. You might want to look into how long it is if you're considering a particular vaccine. Or if an outbreak starts somewhere else and you consider a vaccine then, should I get one or should I wait and see if it gets worse? That should be part of your calculus. The other thing is the incubation time of the disease. Because there's a lag time between when you get exposed to something and when you show symptoms from something. And in some diseases, you're not really spreading until you're sick enough that you can notice you're sick. For other diseases, you're capable of spreading that sucker around before you either get sick at all or before it's clear that it's more than just a head cold. And the longer the incubation time is and the more subtle the symptoms are at the time you start shedding the stuff, the more dangerous it is to go unvaccinated for it. For Ebola, for example, if you were in contact with uh, somebody that had Ebola, they kept you around for three weeks to see if you showed symptoms because they know that after a week and a half, two weeks, you can start spreading it. And after three weeks, you start showing symptoms. Well, that you can get a whole lot of people exposed in that gap between when you start spreading it and when you're overtly sick yourself. So the more subtle the disease is and the longer the incubation period, the more that 
ups the reward for earlier vaccination. I have a, I have a something to to throw in here, and I don't think, I don't know whether you, I have not read. I don't think you probably, from the sound of it, has addressed it in the story, but it's something I think interesting to address. Yep. Because one of the things that people factor in in taking uh, vaccines is it's not just the risk of getting the disease that factors into it. It's how really dangerous is that disease to me or the person I'm deciding for. For example, you have, let's just use a seasonal flu. That A seasonal flu, just a regular seasonal flu, the kind they would have a vaccine for, has very, very small chance of killing me because I'm a healthy adult with a normally act, a normal immune system. Yeah, the Whereas, real risk is sick. In the same time, it would have had a much higher chance of killing her when she was immunosuppressed or immunocompromised when she was on the uh, chemo. Chemo. Yeah. So that that plays into the factor. And one of the things that I see out there, like measles is a really good example because I hear this question asked by people who don't want to vaccinate. You know, how many people have ever died of measles? How many kids have died of measles? Lots. That's the part that I don't think a lot of, because the information hitting out there is, oh, yeah, it's just a childhood disease. It's not that big of a deal. Measles Measles kill people. It, it's it a low, lots of people. low percentage fatality rate, but since almost everybody ends up getting it if they're unvaccinated and living in an unvaccinated population, even a small fatality rate ends up killing a fairly large number of individuals. That's right. Let's say, let me put it in a, let me put it in perspective. Let's say you are a fighter pilot, okay, and you know that just based on the odds, obviously statistics don't. Uh, predict individual predict cases. individual cases. But, but you know, on the odds, you have a one in a hundred chance of getting shot down. Okay? You have a one in a hundred chance of, of not coming back from this mission. I know fighter pilots. I'll say, oh, one in a hundred? I'll take that risk. I will take that risk. Because that is a reasonable risk. Space uh, astronauts, all this kind of thing. I will take that risk because it is worth it to me to take that risk. You don't become a fighter pilot unless that's part of your mindset. But if that fighter pilot goes out and then flies 100 missions, this does not sound right because the math gets weird on this a little bit. But he has a 40% chance of getting shot down over that time span. I know that sounds weird, but the math yep. it, it, the math works, okay? Just trust me on this one. <laughs> you know, that's a whole different thing because if you're going to make a career out of it, sooner or later you're going to catch it. And so, you know, these are real numbers. These are real risks. You say, oh, there's 100, 1 in 100 uh, people are going to die from this disease. Now, I'm not saying that's, it's not, the measles are not that, that deadly. Measles. But I'm just throwing this out there as an example. But people do die of it. Some people. But, you know, people die of it. You know, they do. I know um, if you think about how many people were killed in the Iraq War, and you're like, okay. 
I mean, Americans soldiers. Let's put it that way. I'm not going to go into the whole, but how many American soldiers were killed in Iraq? Well, I don't know the current figures, but you know, it's somewhere around 5,000. Okay. Somewhere around 5,000. And we have 350 million Americans. All right. Well, I personally know five people, American soldiers, who I personally know who were killed in Iraq. That's how weird the math gets on some of this stuff. Yes, it's very rare, but you, you will end up knowing people who will die from this. People you have sat down with on a, on a pile of lumber and had a, you know, a nice conversation with about you know, their future and where they were going and stuff like that. You know, he ended up being, the guy I talked to ended up being one of the numbers. So this podcast is in memory of Sergeant Travis Burkhart. Good kid. Died in Iraq. Truck turned over on him after an, after he hit a landmine. But anyway, a related it happens. I mean, you know what I'm saying? They're, they're not just numbers. They're real people. And a related concern is if you're not concerned for yourself, there are other people in your household who you contact. And you are also less likely to transmit if you're vaccinated. And not only that, but these other people who you are not vaccinating can give it to their brothers and their sisters and you. So and not only you're putting your, your your one kid at risk, that one kid who gets it is probably going to give it to your whole family. Because it's not it doesn't have a high fatality rate, but by golly, it transmits like son of a gun. So not only are you you're, you're doing that, you're putting the whole family at risk. And if you're an adult, it's even worse. You don't want to get the measles. You don't want to get any of these childhood diseases, quote-unquote childhood diseases, as an adult. But the measles and the mumps are two that you particularly do not want to get, especially if you're a male. Yeah, there are some places a guy does not want extra swelling. I'm going to leave it at that. And we'll go on. So the last consideration I did want to bring up is where you live. Because, frankly, if we're talking about a infectious disease that is endemic in Africa or South America or Southeast Asia or Saudi Arabia could be MERS, you know. Uh, I look around me and I see these uh, farm fields covered with little patches of ice and the occasional farmhouse here and there. There's not a whole lot of people to transmit it to me. It can certainly get out here if an epidemic starts in one of those places, but it's going to take a while for an epidemic to get out here to the hinterlands. The occasional unlucky small town will get it early because somebody happens to bring it in from a big city quickly. But on average, the small and rural communities get the epidemics late. And usually when they've started to wane in strength and often when exclusion measures are more effective, it is not as risky if you live in in a rural area as if you live in a big city. With one major caveat, they often start in a rural community, like, for example, the Amish, because <laughs> they all go to church together. The kids go to school together. They're a very, very tight-knit community that's a very social community. So if one gets it, they all get it. And that's yeah. it's an incubator. But it's a, it's a small probability that it's going to be yours, though, is what I was going for. Well, yes, for. but still. So that's, yeah, that's another they thing. they do. And there's less health surveillance in the rural areas, so the epidemics, the outbreaks tend to get a bigger toehold before they're noticed, which is why the uh, Ebola epidemic in 
West Africa was so bad in 2014, they just they had 50 healthcare workers in the whole flippant country. And of course, almost all of those were in the cities. So they had a whole lot of Ebola before anybody recognized they had any Ebola. But in on average, rural areas are better protected against epidemic disease than big cities, particularly big cities that are big uh, airline hubs. Because so many people fly in and out. And, oh, man, you want to talk about an incubator where it's a great way to pass germs. How about an international flight? Oh, my goodness. With those 20-minute turnaround on the airplane, yeah, they're getting all the services decontaminated. Uh And, sure, people are going to abort their flight because they don't feel very good. They're... They're going to give up that $800 ticket and their chance to get home because they've got a little bit of a fever. No, they're going to lie like dogs and get on the plane and hope for the best. And they're going to spread it all over the place. Uh And then it's going to get passed around the airport. And from the airport, it's going to go home in a bunch of directions with a bunch of different people. That's why cruise, one of the reasons why cruise ships are just, they get these huge outbreaks. Now, usually it's it's the short incubation time ones that really kill the cruise ships, like the, uh, uh, norovirus. Noroviruses. Now, people still get sick from longer-term things for going on cruise ships, but just but you, they're hear off about the it ship by the time. It's harder you know. to track back to where they picked but it the up. The norovirus, which hits quickly, can spread through a ship like wildfire. Fortunately, it doesn't kill that many people, but it sure kills a lot of vacations. Oof. Now, I will say, I, I'm going to add one more thing that I'm sure you didn't cover, but that's okay. If somebody, this is my advice to somebody who's not going to vaccinate their children, if you're an anti-vaxxer, I think there is a a definite correlation of something that you have to do. Not a correlation, that's the wrong word. A definite... um, Consequence. No, uh, the word I'm looking for is it's a... uh, um, We call it, in fantasy sports, it's called a handcuff. Whereas if you get the if you get a, a great running back right, and he's your star player and he's got a good backup, you also have to get the backup because if your star player goes down, you've got the starting the next player coming in. It's called a handcuff. So there's a handcuff that goes to me with not vaccinating your children. If you're not going to vaccinate your children, then you need to homeschool them because there is no better way to get a sick child than to send them to school. Period. The kids do not do any kind and i've seen everybody who's been around kids for any they do not do any kind of hygiene they some kids sl- share everything nicely some kids only share their germs nicely but every kid shares their, their germs, germs nicely. nicely they're just all <laughs> over the place so if one kid gets it at school chances are half the school's getting it and it's that simple and if you're not going to vaccinate your kids you need to keep them away from there to me of course on the other hand i'm i'm kind of one of those weirdos who think homeschooling is a much better idea anyway but that's me that's a totally different conversation yeah pressing right along (laughs) that's one we're not in complete agreement with but you know there we go do i know that's one we're not in complete agreement with but there we go look at that you could yeah. skate on that cornfield. You <laughs> literally could skate on that cornfield. I would enjoy skating on that corn. If I had some ice skates and that was my cornfield, I would be out there skating on that cornfield. It looks like fun. I mean, there was it was there was not a ripple in the surface of that corn. Look at that over there. And you know, yeah. if you fell through, you're going three Two inches. Two inches, yeah. It's you a know. perfect place to skate. Yeah. 
anyway, we're going to wrap this up. So that's the deal. If you're the decision you're going to make, think about what the disease is like, how it transmits, how long it's likely to take to get to you as part of your uh, decision-making process. Don't just go, you know, if you blanket, I'm not going to take any vaccinations or I'm going to take all vaccinations, you're probably uh, not serving yourself best with either one of those options. All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you the next time.